Take note of the questions. They're there. We'll use them at the, at the end. Good morning. I hope that you all are, are, are well. It is certainly good to see you all this morning. Um, we have a lot to do, so I hope you ate breakfast this morning. Um, we're going to do all of Nehemiah chapter 9 this morning, so if you go ahead and turn there. I hope that you had a chance to, to read it this week. Um, chapter 8 began the, the seventh month of, of the Jewish calendar. Again, that's the holiest month for the Jews. They have uh, three different feasts that they, that they celebrate in that, uh, in that month. And what we have been focusing on as we've come into that seventh month for them and what their leaders have been focusing on for them is to rebuild this people so that they would understand who they are as a people. And so Ezra, the scribe and the priest who God had just done amazing work in his life, calling him to know the scriptures and to teach the scriptures, now has the, the opportunity to teach everybody all that one time, and he does, and Nehemiah leads the people to, to sit and listen, to hear God's word be studied and read to them all day. Uh, and we saw in chapter 8 how it's been read, it's been studied, it's been lived out, it's been taught, it's been rejoiced in. Um, we've seen how they celebrated the feast, the, uh, uh, the feast of booths last week, as, and then moved into the the solemn assembly on the eighth day of the feast, which would have made the 23rd day of the month. So now we're in chapter 9, and it's time to deal with what came back at the beginning of chapter 8. In the beginning of chapter 8, you might remember that what came bubbling up to the surface as they read God's word is that people understood that they were sinners, that God has been kind and gracious and merciful over and over and over again, and they have done nothing but sinned and neglected and rejected God. And so they wanted to repent of their sins. They were weeping over their sin, and yet it wasn't the right time, so they led them to rejoice. And now we've come to the point where it's time to deal with their sin. We're going to read the whole chapter, 38 verses. Buckle up. Now on the 24th day of this month, September, October for us, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God, for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. On the stairs, the Levites stood, Jeshua, Benai, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Shariah, Beni, and Chaniah. And they all cried with a loud voice to the Lord, their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Benai, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethiah, said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You made the heavens and the heavens heavens with all the hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and you made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorite, the Perizzite, and the Jebusite, and the Girgashites. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous, and you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the peoples of the land. For you knew they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. 
and you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into the mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire, you led them in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. And you gave them the right rules and laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them the bread from heaven for their hunger and brought waters for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go to possess the land that you have sworn to give them. But they... Our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But, you stiffened, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. And when they had made themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and they committed great blasphemies in your great mercy, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud led them in the way, did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, which was not withhold, which did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples, and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as stars of the heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand and their kings, and the peoples of the land, that they might go with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities in a rich land, and took possession of the houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Before, therefore, excuse me, therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rested, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order the in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets that they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the people's of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. 
Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all our people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amidst your great goodness that you gave them in the and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yields go to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock, as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document, our names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. I need to catch my breath for a second. Of course, I dribble. What a glorious and powerful chapter. It's not just a chapter in our Bibles, but this was a heartfelt prayer by a people who after a whole month, right, this is now the 24th day, after a whole month of being saturated in God's word, this was their prayer. What is truly amazing here is to see how effective God's word is to change the people's hearts after one month of every day being in God's word. We could certainly take weeks and months to unpack this chapter. It is quite rich, and we can dig back to all the various stories in the Old Testament. However, it's one prayer. It's meant to be understood as one prayer and to be read as one prayer. And so we're going to take it all together and understand the glorious work of our Lord and his people and what they saw and what they prayed all the way back in 445 B.C. How do you, how do we, how did they deal with a history, with a history, a whole nation, a whole life, of failures. How did they deal with that? The sin, as we can read, and we just read it all in one chapter, 38 verses, pretty long, but in a sense, we just read this accumulation, this massive accumulation of the sin of this people. Well, we all know that it doesn't take long for things to accumulate, do we? It doesn't take long for flat surfaces in our homes to just kind of attract things. It doesn't take long for kitchens to become disheveled. If you do not wa uh, run the dishwasher and unload the dishwasher at least once a day in our home, it becomes almost unbearable in the kitchen. You all know that laundry can accumulate Dirty laundry can accumulate quite a bit and get out of control quite a, a, a bit. That's like the definition of accumulation. Not just dirty laundry, but then the clean laundry. 
Yet, things accumulate quickly. If you think about your life, the span of your life for just a moment, can you grasp the accumulation of your sin over your lifetime so far? Every thought, every action, every inaction, all the wasted time, the resources wasted, how we have spurned God's commandments and God's law and God's word, neglected his word, rebelled against his goodness, distrust his promises, sin against other people. How big of a pile of dirty laundry would that be? How much would be accumulated in that lifetime? It's an accumulation that it's almost impossible to fathom. And if we could catch the grasp and fathom that accumulation, oh, the weight of guilt and shame that would be upon us. And how unbearable that would be. I heard this past week on a podcast from this guy that was being interviewed. He said, the miracle about human memory is not that we can remember stuff, but the miracle about our, our memory is that we can forget things. We can compartmentalize and process a day and then go to sleep and start a new day. In some ways, that can definitely be a wrong, bad thing because then we could sweep things under the carpet and under the rug of sin and not, not deal with them and not understand the weight and the gravity of our sin. But in another way, if you had to carry the pile of your mistakes every single day, could you survive under that weight? Could you survive under that weight? And, and we, I think we know the answer is no. That would be some tough sledding. And as Christians, we know the, the, the good news is, is the mercy of God that keeps us from bearing that weight of our sin, knowing that it was Christ who bore our sin. The subtitle in our ESVs, if you have an ESV Bible, is for this passage, for this chapter, is the people of Israel confess their sin. And you see right there in verse 2, that's absolutely true. That's what they're doing, right? So 23 days later from the first day, now they're confessing their sin. And confession of their sin is very much a massive part of this prayer. That's the, one of the major parts, right, of this prayer, to make sure that people understand their sin. But the only way they know the darkness of their sin and their sin is in light of God's mercy and God's holiness. This chapter certainly is an accumulation of the sin of Israel. Our lives as a, can be categorized as a, an accumulation of our mistakes. But in this prayer is also highlighted, as the gospel tells us, of the love of God, the mercy of God, the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God, and even God's judgment. It recounts their rebellion, their neglect, their, their distrust, their love for the world, and yet also how the Lord has been so good to them. Do not miss your sin do not miss the accumulation of your sin, but also do not miss the overwhelming love of God displayed through the work of God in your life. Before we get to the main points of the sermon, let's just set the, the prayer up and what's going on and how all this went down. You can pretty much quick, quickly see the tone of the passage. It's not a a big party anymore like it has been for most of chapter 8. It's more of a lament. 
This prayer is more of a lament. We see that, right? That's the, the tone. You see that they physically, they're, they're fasting, they're wearing sackcloth, they're throwing dirt on their, on their heads, on their faces, which is a physical sign meant to show that they are in mourning over something. They are grieving something, and what they are grieving is their sin before God. We also see how they separated themselves from the rest of the nations. My guess is that they closed the gates that they just built and said, we need some time to do some family business. They closed themselves off from the rest of the nation. They shut themselves off from the rest of the nation as a desire for holiness. They separated themselves, which means that's actually the, the very most direct uh, 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 meaning of holiness is to separate. And they separated themselves. And to do what? Verse 3. Verse 2 was they confessed their sin, but verse 3, they stood. Again, they stood out of a reverence and honor to God. But what did they do again? Again, they read from the book of the law. An ongoing trend. 24 days later, this is what we do. We read God's word. They could not get enough of God's word. For three hours, a quarter of the day, they read from God's word. For the next quarter of the day, they made confession of their sin. And they worshipped the Lord their God. They understood the word clearly, as we saw back in chapter 8. And this was their response, to confess and to worship. This is the biblical requirement. This is the biblical response to anyone that is confronted by God's word, to confess and to worship. Anyone who has been given the eyes to see and the heart to see by the Lord, they confess their sin and they worship. 24 days earlier, they heard the word read publicly, and it broke them. Chapter 8. It made them undone to see their sin. But as providence would have it, the day was not for weeping, but it was for rejoicing. And so they rejoiced. And over the next couple weeks, they continuously heard the word of God read and, and taught. And then they were obedient to God's word. We saw their obedience last week, uh, celebrating the feast of of booths. But now, 24 days later, their hearts are ready to confess their sin and repent. Not that it wasn't ready back on day one, or that it would just be shallow, but now their guilt and shame has become quite real to them. It's deeper as they specifically know even more God's word. For 24 days of hearing God's word, hearing his law, how they violated his law, but also of his love and his goodness and his faithfulness to his people. Another very important point that's made in verse 4. Again, it's the Levites who, who lead out with, the, with a loud voice and confession and worship God. To lead the people corporately to repent, to confess, and to worship. They tell the people, verse 5, to stand up, bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Bless your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. They are basically saying to the people, the name of God is more worthy and more exalted and more majestic than our meager praises can ever express. The Lord deserves his people to honor him, to sing to him, and to worship him greatly. This call to worship here sounds very familiar should sound very familiar to us. Just a few minutes ago, we began our worship service with a, with a call to worship, an invitation to come and worship with us. We read God's word. We prayed God's word. We 
stood and we sang and we blessed the Lord and we sang together, glorifying God and building one another up. Why? Because He alone is worthy. In the rest of the chapter, verses 6 through 37, we hear the content of their worship and of their, pray, of their confession. And so for the rest of this sermon, I want to break it down into two very simple points. Worship and confession. And at the heart of every prayer that has been transformed, conformed to God's word, is a desire to praise him. To praise him. He's not just a divine butler to serve us at every one of our needs and every one of our whims, but he is God, worthy to be praised. And because he is God, we come to him and him alone, and we confess our sin because he alone can forgive us. So first is worship, praising God. That's a massive part of this prayer, isn't it? Certainly, there's this accumulation of their, of their sin, and, and that was like the first thing I latched on was like, man, look at them. And then it was like, ooh, look at me. But what then became to shine over and over was despite them was this, the Lord who loved them and who cared for them and provided for them over and over and over and over and over. I, I can say overs all day long, and yet it still doesn't even come close to how much God continually showed his love for them and his kindness for them and his mercy for them over and over and over and over and over again. And to bless them, despite their accumulation of sin and the weight of their sin, is the goodness of God in this prayer. And that's what verse 5 calls the people to do. Come praise God from everlasting to everlasting. And in this prayer, to praise God, they go through Israel's history up to that point for all the reasons of why the Lord should be praised. In all of the Old Testament, this is the fullest summary of the storyline of the Old Testament. A lot of details here. A biblical theological summary of all the good works of God in comparison to the faithful, the unfaithfulness of Israel. Verse 6 says, you are the Lord, you alone. Which also could be read, you alone are Yahweh. You are God. You are the one and only God. All these other idiots outside the walls and what they're doing, that's not God. You're God. Yahweh. And you stand alone. You stand alone. They continue in verse 6. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You preserve all of them. And the host of the heavens of heaven worship you. They recognize and praise the Lord. Yahweh, who stands alone as the creator of all things, of heaven and on earth, creator and sustainer, creator and sustainer, and by his omnipotent hand, he sustains all of them. And what he's declaring here is that all of creation, the purpose of all of creation is to worship Why does this prayer begin right here? Why didn't they just get right to the sin? Certainly the guilt was all the way up to the top, right? 
Why didn't they begin here? Why did they begin here? Because praising God begins with knowing that he alone deserves all the credit for everything. He deserves the credit for everything. The amazing world and universe that we live in. When fall comes around, we admire the leaves, don't we? That looks so beautiful. And then they fall, and what do we do with them? We trash them. And then just a few months later, what does God do? He brings new life. That's amazing. There's not one of you really smart engineers that can engineer that. You can figure out how it happens. Scientists, you can figure out how that happens. No offense, Ryan, Anthony, and Keith, I love you. Scientists can figure out how it happens, but they can't do it. They can't do it with one tree. God does it with quadrillions. Is that a number? We'll soon find out what the next one is when our debt gets there, right? <laughs> we laugh very sadly, don't we? God does it. We can't fathom it, right? I can go on and on here, especially from after an awesome day I had yesterday with Patrick going fishing. See, God's amazing work there. He alone deserves all of it. And they start there because that's where we need to stay, in this humble place of, you're God. I am not. I'm, this, I'm a creature. I'm created. And if you're God and I'm created, then I am subject to you. That's why they start there. They start there because in confessing their sins, which they do later, they do so because they are subject to this holy, righteous, creating, glorious God. They're obligated. They're accountable to him. He has made us. We are accountable to him. All of man is accountable to God. I heard a great argument this week that man's attempt to subvert this truth that God as creator with this naturalistic Darwinism or everything is just material, materialism, in this evolution, right, is only to explain the existence of everything, right, all the ways that the world wants to explain how everything exists. It's all this elaborate dodge to get away from this point number one. It's just this elaborate thing. We don't want to recognize that God is God. I'm God. That's what it's about. All of it. It's this elaborate attempt. So this is where we start. This is where they start to understand the Lord, that he alone is God, creator, sustainer of all things. Doesn't the New Testament start us there too? John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God. Jesus created Romans chapter 1 shows us that creation, God shows that through creation proves the existence of God and his glory. Why? Again, because man must understood that he is the Lord and he is their creator. So first they start with his as creator, and second, we see them praising God because he has distinctly chose them. He chose Abram, and he brought him out. He separated him, and he changed his name to Abraham because he would be a father to a nation, to a people, to God's people. Why did God choose Abraham? Why did God choose Abraham? God chose Abraham by his own prerogative and for his glory. And the Lord has chosen his people, his elect before the foundation of the world, not because of their inherent glory, but for his glory. The Lord covenanted with Abraham 
to give him many offspring and to be a blessing to all the nations. In verse 8, they confess, and you have kept your promise, this promise, that they would be a people and a blessing to the nations, for you are righteous. The Lord is righteous. Just as he is holy, he is righteous. And God has always held to his part of his covenant with his people. And thousands of years later, though they are small and though they are afflicted, they see the unbelievable amount of evidence of God's faithfulness to his people even then. Look down at verse 32. They say, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, that could be like a whole sermon right there, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. He has always kept his covenant with his people and has always loved his people. They're about to make a request, but what is clear is that the Lord keeps his promise and steadfastly loves his people. Verse 33 says, Yet you have been righteous in all things that has come upon us. That means God has been just in all things. That means God has always done what is right. For you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. The juxtaposition here is God's faithfulness to their wickedness. And yet without fail, God has been faithful over and over again. He has been kind and loving and righteous and gracious and merciful. Has God ever done anything to you that was wrong? Has he ever not kept his promise? Has he not always been just and good and right and loving? A child may not understand why they're being disciplined when they're being disciplined. In fact, they may even become angry because they were disciplined and think that this is not right. But hopefully, that child will grow to learn to see that the discipline was just and right because they acted disobediently and disobedience, wickedly, and have been corrected. In verses 13 and 14, we see how the Lord receives worship and praise because he gave them his law. He gave his word to them. He came to them and he spoke to them through Moses because in love, he tells them as, as their creator and as their God that they are his people. And if I am your God and you will be my people, then this is how you are to worship me. This is how you are to love me. And this is how you are to love one another. And in God's law, there is no guessing. There's no guessing in how we are to understand and know the Lord. There's no guessing on how we are to please him, how he has come down and he has sent us and given us his word. As he has given them his word, he has given us his word. Now, so familiar, right? God giving his word to his people. Can you rejoice in the truth, the glorious truth that God has spoken? That he has sent us his word? 
the true word of God? And why? Why has God given us his word? So that we could know him. So that we could know him. That we're not guessing and trying to figure out God just by looking at the stars. You see how well that works when we try to do that. But we know him. Think about how good God is in giving his word. Let me stop and ask for a second. If, if, if God is God and he is God, sovereign, omnipotent, he knows all things, omniscient, all-powerful, and he knows his people, even giving them their, his word, even then, they would fail and they would sin over and over again, that they would reject him over and over again, that they would act wickedly. God knew this, that he was gonna, they were going to reject the very word that he was giving them. Then why in the world would God still give, him, give them his word? I think that's the whole point. So that they would see his mercy and see his grace, and, and see God and delight in him that he has still spoken to them. And they would recount all the ways God has been good to them and loving to them, despite themselves, that these people at this time can look back at his word and see the history and be able to delight in them, and that would lead them into confession. There's examples of God's love in this passage, verses 9 through 11. The Lord, through his servant Moses, delivered them from slavery. This is the, the exodus in verse 15 and in verses 20 through 21. We see how the Lord provided bread from heaven, manna, the water from the, from the, the rock and the, and the clothes that didn't even wear out. Their feet didn't even become sore and, and swell. And why did God do all this? Because he loved them. Because he cared for them. To provide for them. He provided the, the guidance in the desert. The pillar of clouds and the, and the fire. He gave his spirit. Did you catch that verse? Where he gave his Holy Spirit to indwell certain teachers so that they would instruct the people. Even in the Old Testament, we see the work of the Holy Spirit, God giving his spirit so that they would know how to be obedient to him. In verses 22 through 25, when they came into the, through the promised land, what did God give them? He gave them already built kingdoms, vineyards that were already planted, and olive orchards and houses and, and land that was already subdued. The weeds were already taken out. The pests have been dealt with. Land that had already been subdued. He provided the blessing of, of having children that they would multiply as a people and grow as a people and flourish. The blessing of, of children. The Lord had given them life. God had given them abundant life. In fact, verse 25 says that it was so abundant so that they could delight in him and that they could delight in his goodness. And you even see that it, they became fat. They became enriched by God's blessings. But when the people are disciplined for their disobedience, we really see God's love as well. Because even though the Lord handed them over to their enemies and they suffered, they also cried out. And the Lord amazingly hears their cries and he provides, and see if you caught this here, provided saviors. Did you see that? Not judges, saviors, provided saviors to deliver them. And this happens over and over again if you've read the book of Judges. So in all of these things that God has provided, and we see his love just manifested all of these glorious things, could we not ask ourselves the question, has the Lord not provided for us as a people the bread of life and living water, 
a lamp unto our feet that guides us, a Holy Spirit who indwells in us to teach us and to call us into obedience and instruct us in all things. The fruitfulness of multiplying as a people. Christ said, I will build my church. Has the Lord not sent a Savior to deliver us from the greatest of all enemies? Not just in our own enemies that we have created, but our own sin and death, which we were firm in its clutches, and that we would now would no longer submit ourselves to that yoke of slavery. The answer to that question is a resounding yes. God has shown, God has provided, God has given, God has loved, God has been gracious, God has been merciful. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from everlasting to everlasting. Let all of God's people praise the Lord. The Lord provides out of his abundant mercy. Verse 17 says, But you are God, ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. And this was in the context of the idolatrous worship, the rebellion of the, of the golden calf, where God had every right to destroy his people for being so wicked. And yet he doesn't. He judges them. But he also forgives, and he's gracious, and he's merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Brothers and sisters, this is our God, who is abounding, limitless in his love and his mercy toward his people. Again, in the context of the judges, verse 27, they pray, Therefore you gave them into their hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven according to your great mercies. You gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But they, verse 28, had rest. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet they, when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them. How? According to your mercies. His mercy. My mercy at times has a limit to my detriment. The Lord's mercy is abounding. Why are we saved? Why are you redeemed? And why are you forgiven with such a pile of accumulated sin? And we can come up with some great theological answers, but I think one really fits here. Is that we are saved according to his mercies for his namesake. For his glory according to his mercies. And what that means is that we bring absolutely nothing. We bring absolutely nothing. We bring sin and wickedness. Romans 5.20, but where sin increased, grace abound all the more. <laughs> Let me read that again. Here's your pile that's accumulating where sin increased, grace abounded even more. Verse 31 recalls God's mercy again. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. Meaning, yes, you could have. And everyone could have said, yep. They deserved it. For you are a gracious and merciful God. 
We didn't even get to consider the sovereignty of God that's stated throughout this passage, are we? Can't we? The sovereignty of God to crush Egypt. <laughs> the sovereignty of God on, that has worked on behalf of his people. Splitting the Red Sea, crushing their enemies, subduing the nations, and then using the nations to judge his people when they were disobedient, and then calling them back to himself. The Lord has been sovereign on their behalf. So why, does they, why do they pray this way? Why do they pray in this way, recalling so much of the Israel's history and all these things that God has done? The point is to worship the Lord. To worship the Lord for who he is and what he has done. And hopefully you as well can have the, the same conclusion when you are in moments of remembering God's goodness for even your sin. That you're dragged up and you brought up and yet you see his grace abound even more. In those moments even confession and renewal. You, you Return and worship God. You are glorious and you alone deserve to be praised because I did nothing and you did it all and you showed such great love toward us. 2 Corinthians 4.15, it says, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase our thanksgiving. Not our thanksgiving meals. No more turkeys, but our praise of God, our adoration of God to the glory of God. Increase our thanksgiving to the glory of God. It is for our worship. It is to increase our thanksgiving and for the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, where has he brought you from? How has he delivered you? How has the Lord providentially shown his goodness and his love over you over and over and over and over and over, dot, 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 etc. over and over. You get the point. Over and over, he shows his steadfast love toward us. Do you deserve that love? Do you deserve that grace, that mercy? Can you see the overwhelming mercy and grace of God over your entire life? Even with the accumulation of sin. Do you know his love? Do you know his forgiveness? Do you know his mercy? Then let your worship be full The praise of God is throughout this prayer. And I wanted to start there first because, I, again, we kind of need to see that first. Because we quickly want to go to the sin, and that's what we're getting to now. We don't want to miss the praise of God and what he has done. Despite the goodness and love of God, they know their need. Verse 2, they come confessing sackcloth and ashes and dirt on their face, repenting. In verse 16, I think it sums it up. Notice in the prayer it says, you, right, the pronoun you, God, and this, the juxtaposition of the third person pronoun, they, meaning us. But they... And our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffed, stiffened their neck and did not obey your commands. Verse 17, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. The same language used to describe how the Egyptians acted toward them. 
They stiffened their neck. It's the same language that is employed here to show you're acting like the world. You're arrogant. You've stiffened your neck. You have acted presumptuously. But even worse, Egypt stiffened their neck toward you, but you have stiffened your neck toward God. After the Lord had given them so much, so much in the promised land, they go on and talking about the promised land, showing so much goodness and grace and mercy and the abounding blessings that they receive. What does it say in verse 20 to 6? Nevertheless, they, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. And cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets, and who warned them in order to warn them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed, they committed great blasphemies. They were disobedient. Don't have to define, don't have to illustrate that. They rebelled against God and his word. The same thing that has now drawn them in, God's word, is what they had rebelled against. But now God's word is drawn them in. They even killed the prophets. God sent the prophets to draw them back, to lead them back, yet they killed them. Jesus tells a parable about this. Bonus. You can find that later. You get bonus points for that. The Lord called them back through these prophets, and yet they killed them. They committed great blasphemies which is not only an outright disgusting rejection of God, these blasphemies are assuming what they did is they took the things of God and they perverted them in such a way to serve their own needs and their own desires. Blasphemies. This prayer outlines their sin. This outright history of rejecting God and his word, a history of accumulated sins against the Lord. This prayer isn't glorifying sin, is it? I mean, you don't read this going, ooh, I want to be like them. This doesn't glorify sin. In fact, they pray in a way that makes us understand that, that sin wants to do what? Sin wants to take you back to Egypt, guys. Sin wants to put you back into slavery. And that makes no sense because sin is stupid. Because it's against God's word. But we've all sinned. And we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Not one of us has not believed the lie of sin. Our lives are only a microchasm of the whole history of Israel. Do you want to understand the conviction of your sin? Then, brothers and sisters, do what this prayer tells us that Israel did not do. Look at your life. Look at the majesty of God and what you are as a human being and the way that God has created you in his image. Look at those things and see yourself as you truly are. Remember all the good things that, that God has done for you. He has not starved any one of us, has he? We all have come with clothing, heartbeats, and breaths. God has been truly good to us in the grand ways and even to the smallest of detail. And even this morning, is the Lord not showing us all mercy by studying his word together this morning? In their prayer, is the right admission of all of us who have sinned. You have been righteous, verse 33, and all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly.
The first step is confessing who God is, God and Creator. And the second is to confess our sin, that we are the wicked ones. We are the sinners. And by God's grace, as they did that day, as God's word had its effect on them and their hearts, they became more and more aware of their ability to confess sin. Brothers and sisters, God has provided a way for us to no longer walk in a long history of accumulated sin. No longer carrying the dirty laundry that builds up. He has provided. If scripture this morning has moved your heart, then you can confess your sins to this magnificent, loving God. How can you be forgiven of your sins? You must look to Jesus Christ. And in Christ, God became a man. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross, taking the penalty deserved by all of us. And whoever would repent of their sin and turn to him in faith will be forgiven. Christ is the answer to our sins, isn't it? He who is without sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, keep confessing, keep repenting, keep looking to Christ, keep remembering who God is, keep worshiping the Lord. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to close this morning looking into the New Testament to something that sounds very familiar to this prayer. It's one of my favorite passages in the scripture. It's one that we are familiar of. And to be honest, I decided to read it because I knew if I didn't, knowing Kenny, he's going to read this text. I know, he's, I know he's probably already written it down. And that's Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy and because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God preparehand beforehand that we should walk in them. If that does not stir your heart, <laughs> that is what that people longed to see. And we see it. If you are a Christian, then this should never get old. Worship and rejoice in the Lord. Praise him. Praise him. Praise him. 
and confess your sins. Remembering and knowing who he is as you did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And we pray, O oh God, that it would have its full effect in our hearts to do exactly what this prayer intended. To bring about your worship, your glory and delight amongst your people. But also the confession of our sin. To be right before you. Knowing that you are loving and kind and that you will forgive us. And you forgive us because of Christ and his sacrificial work on the cross who has made atonement for all of our sin. By grace we have been saved. Lord, we thank you. We pray that you'd use our time of response to glorify yourself and to build up one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.